0: Welcome to Growth Island, your go-to podcast on how to be the best version of yourself. Now, let's join your host, Mess Freeze, as he interviews high performers and experts in nutrition, meditation, exercise, relationships, business, general health, and life's
1: bigger mysteries. Thank you so much for tuning in. I got a super cool expert in today. He's a psychologist, He has a PhD, and he's been writing some super useful books. One of them, a new one, is the Anxiety, Depression, and Anger Toolbox for Teens. Super concrete advice. He also wrote another book about how to actually help a defiant kid. We're going to get more into that later. I know several friends at least have big challenges with that, so that can be a lifesaver if we can get some concrete advice out. So the guest that I got in today is Dr. Jeffrey Bernstein? Stein? Bernstein? Stein. 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 Yes. <laughs> Stein. Stein. Bernstein. Jeffrey, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today.
0: Thank you so much, Mas. I appreciate it. So Jeffrey, how did you get into
1: psychology and how did you get into writing several books?
0: <laughs> well, um, I grew up and I, you know, I'm very grateful. I'm I'm an only child. So I think as an only child it kind of gave me a lot more time to think cuz I wasn't fending off siblings <laughs> who were trying to tackle me and knock me down and wrestling with them although I'm grateful to say I've had a lot of friends grown up and still do but I think maybe part of that was the only child part a lot of it was my personality I remember even it's so wild I remember back in 5th grade we did a an experiment it was like a sociality experiment in our in our hick upstate New York very rural community School and it was doing the brown eyes versus the blue eyes, an experiment to look at prejudice. And I remember in the group debriefing subject uh, discussion, which by, by the way, all these you know fifth graders and sixth graders got really carried away. In some way, the experiment was a fail because, well, it showed that people can really polarize. And you look at our culture and the world, and we certainly have a lot of that. Um, but people took it too far, and I was very much wanting to check in because some people were very hurt during that, like, one day where the brown eyes are the ones in control versus the other day the blue eyes. It's funny, I never talked – this is just coming to me, Moss, as you're asking me. I haven't talked about this in years. And But I remember all my questions were, like, so oriented toward the shame and the pain and the anxiety, and that that's just probably one spot – One event on a timeline where my whole life, I've just been very fascinated by what makes people tick, the nuances of what makes us different, how much of ourselves, how much we're shaped by life uh, experiences versus genetics. I guess it's just been within me. I have sort of an inquiring mind.
1: I can very much relate to that. So what are some of the things you write about in your new book, like the, the toolbox for teens that how can people work with anxiety, depression and anger? I guess that's also sure. a lot of aspects to tackle but if we start uh, with anxiety.
0: Yeah. Well, and the book is called The Anxiety, Depression and Anger Toolbox for Teens. Um it was really um very helpful to write it. It came from a lot of my work in sessions. I'd like to think most of the material in the book really comes from what I've done with so many kids in my practice and trying to get a sense of what works and doesn't work and you know, I guess what I can say is this. I think anxiety is so common and yet it's so poorly understood even though we all know it's very common and by that i mean particularly with teens there's a lot of shame still i'd like to think there's less now Um, for example people in populations that are like lbtgq population people who have been maybe quote unquote not in mainstream society who are thankfully being able to integrate in the, the world is being more open, right? We're talking about more diversity. And so nested within that is psychology and all the nuances, all the things that we struggle with. I th- I'd like to think we're getting more open, but we have a long ways to go. And with teenagers, what I find is a lot of them won't even know they have anxiety. It'll come out sideways. It'll come out through Depression. They'll want to, you know, they get worn down. They get maybe a lot of social anxiety. Did I say something stupid? Is she going to reject me? Is he going to reject me? You know, I lost this friend. What's wrong with me kind of thing? I'm not good enough. Um, All those kind of negative self talk type reacting brain uh, stuff that overtakes all of us and makes our thinking brains kind of shut down and we end up getting paralyzed. And so, I've just been very fascinated by helping teens become more clear on even being able to acknowledge that they do feel anxious. Because a lot of them will just say, I'm angry, you know, I'm pissed off, pardon my language, Um, leave me alone, or, you know, that sucks. Or, you know, as opposed to saying, you know, I'm really nervous about doing well on this science test, you know, my science teacher is a jerk. Now, um, I don't want to under, you know, undercut all teams. I mean, some are articulate and are able to express that they have anxiety, but a lot of the kids that I see in my practice, they just become so overwhelmed that they can't problem solve. And I really think, Mass, that the two skills in life that we all need more than anything is the ability to calm down and the ability to solve problems. If you can do those two skills in life, calm down solve problems to me all the rest falls into place and anxiety and the reason i'm so interested is because it usurps those two skills the ability to calm down and solve problems makes sense yeah
1: and when we talk about anxiety will you try and give a definition of that because there's both anxiety for groups there's panic anxiety and so on so just a few words for someone that might actually have anxiety but are not aware of it and And otherwise, so people can kind of identify what it means.
0: Well, I think for a lot of people, anxiety is felt with a lot of questioning. I think there's two words that there's a lot of exercises in the book, in the toolbox book that talk about this. So there's two words that usually drive most of the time that we have thoughts around anxiety. Those two words, the leaders are, what if? What if I can't get this done? What if I don't get into a good college? what if I don't make the team? What if she thinks I'm ugly? What if this pimple on my forehead really turns this person off? What if they see it? What if it gets worse? You know, the body image stuff, all those kind of what if statements. Another one that really is a big driver of anxiety is, and this is all from cognitive behavioral therapy, the idea that our thoughts shape our feelings and our behaviors. When we think healthy thoughts, we feel better. When we think unhealthy thoughts, we don't feel so well. So another unhealthy thought, rigid kind of thought that takes us to a really not so good place is shoulding. When we should all over ourselves, pardon my language, or we should all over others. I should know this. This shouldn't be so hard for me. You should know how I feel. You know, those kinds of should thoughts are another driver. So I think when we get these types of internal reactive thoughts, they create that state of anxiety. And we're not kind when we're in that place. We're frantic. We're often trying to pretend we're someone else because we don't want the world to know that we're feeling anxiety. And that leads on to a whole nother issue, which is I talk a lot about is the the, the aliases, right? Like shame, you know, or anxiety comes out in so many other ways. It comes out as anger, as I was saying. It comes out as stress, People are okay, oh, well, I'm stressed out, but they don't want to talk about being anxious because they're afraid that they're weak. And that's one of the biggest problems I continue to see.
1: I can imagine that, especially being for a lot of men that don't want to acknowledge that they're actually afraid or feeling anxious. That makes sense. So what I really liked about your book is that it's it's very um, concrete. There's actually stuff you can do. So yes. you, you talk about calming down. What would be one, two, three concrete ways of of calming down?
0: Okay, so a couple of things. One is we hear so often take deep breaths. And I get people in my practice and, you know, they'll say, I'll say, how about taking some deep breaths? And they'll say, that doesn't work for me. And so I've talked about deep breaths. I've I've written a couple of books. I've written Mindfulness for Teen Worry, The Stress Survival Guide for Teens, and this latest one, The Toolbox, I have these exercises in there, but in my book, what I try to explain is why the deep breathing works, not just take the deep breaths. And so there's a couple of reasons. One is when you focus on your breath, you're in the moment. And anxiety is a land of fiction, as I mentioned before, with that what if type mechanism that goes off. But when you can focus on your breath and you do belly breathing, you breathe in through your nose and you feel the breath go down and your stomach comes out as you breathe in, and then you breathe out, which means your stomach comes back in. So into your nose and your stomach comes out. And then you breathe out and it comes right back through your windpipe and out of your mouth. Why does this work? One, because as we focus on the breath, we're in the moment. Now, a lot of people will say, this doesn't work for me, Dr. Jeff. It doesn't work. I say, why? Because I get all these thoughts. I can't meditate, Dr. Jeff. I get all these thoughts. Well... A big part of doing this mindfulness meditation work, which deep breathing is an anchor, right? It's a quick way to do it. Is letting go and realizing you're gonna get all sorts of thoughts. Why do why do cows have black and white spots? And you know why do we get dreams that sheep are jumping over fences? And you know when is the current pandemic for coronavirus gonna end? And all these types of things that are going on in our lives. We get thoughts, and and when you can turn around and say, this is just a thought, it's okay, and join with the thought as opposed to think you have to get rid of the thought. So deep breathing, and the other reason, Mass, that deep breathing works is because when you breathe in on belly breathing, you expand your diaphragm in your abdomen, and that stimulates your vagus nerve, and it sends a signal up to your reacting brain your amygdala housed within the limbic system to reboot it so 2,000 years of, of, of buddhism can't be wrong um at least hopefully not and that's why it works for so many people deep breathing number one number two another one is to be able to squeeze a lemon or squeeze something some kind of muscle relaxation so i'll say to a lot of kids hey Can you go get me a lemon? You know, especially now that I'm doing online therapy a lot. You know, so they start to get up. I said, no, no, sit there. You have an unlimited amount of lemons in your brain. So grab a lemon. Pretend there's a hole in the bottom of the lemon. Squeeze that lemon. Do you notice when you squeeze a lemon, your arm gets tight? Your whole body follows it? Now, drop the lemon. Oh, Your hand gets loose. So working on that muscle tension directly. So we've got that. And then another strategy is again, learning to challenge those what ifs, mass. And one way to do that is to have a, a, it's like there's a prosecuting attorney, a lawyer who's trying to really nail you with that what if. You want your own defense attorney, in-house counsel in your brain. And that, and I actually have exercises on this in the book. And where you write out each what if, and then you write out the counter, what, and this is seven word fix for the what if. (laughs) Here we go. What is, we all know this question, the worst thing that can happen? Eight words. And more often than not, if we really take the time to ask ourselves, what is the worst thing that can happen? It may not be great, but it's probably not as bad most of the time. So again, we want to get out of that land of fiction. And we do that by calming down with breathing, by muscle tension exercises, and by learning to talk back to our own internal baloney, I'll call it, for the purposes of your podcast. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense.
1: Thank you so much, Jeffrey. That's definitely very concrete and something you can do at home. So another thing I was I was curious about is what's the big difference in teens and adults? I guess teens is kind of amplifying some of the challenges that some of the some of our adults don't right. get rid of, but I guess a lot of the challenges are the same.
0: Well, and I and I I assume your video goes in archive, but I don't think anybody is going to forget this great pandemic going on right now, um, all over the world. So. One example, um, Mass would be the current call for social distancing because of this coronavirus pandemic here in, you know, 2020. Um, in as we're in April now. Um, and what what you fee- see with a lot of not now there are teams that are following it, so shout out to the teams that are being quote unquote obedient and compliant and following it, but the team brain, there was a lot of um press initially about teens gathering on beaches and kind of not really buying into the social distancing, and which is, of course, the precaution we need to take so we don't infect ourselves with this terrible current virus right now. And the reason that they were not doing it, why? Well, because a human brain does not fully mature. That frontal lobe, that part of your brain that does good decision-making and planning and thinking about consequences, doesn't fully mature. So estimates are age twenty five twenty six. I'm still waiting on mine, and i'm fifty nine right now, but um <laughs> but that's a problem with teens. Then you've got the hormones are very, very much kicking in. So teens often are living with that sort of go set ready versus ready set go. Um, there's a lot of impulsivity. They're not able to think ahead of time in general as much as adults can, and so then they get themselves into trouble.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. How is the brain developing and why are some people not seeing the consequences of some dangers before or later? Right.
0: And I think it's easy to forget that teens have a hard time seeing this. And and they do have that sense of being invulnerable, that it's not going to happen to me. And so I think we need to have a lot of compassion and empathy that when we're trying to get a message across to teens, to really empathize with what is in it for them because it is a place where they're more self-absorbed um, because they don't think of the long-term consequences and they're feeling all these pressures of peers. And so, hey, I, I hear right now that, you know, you you can't go to your prom and because of this current situation going on and that must feel really, I, I hear that's a real loss for you. Or I understand that, you know, you're really frustrated with me and you think I'm very restricted. This would be the parent talking and learning how to say this in a way that um is joining with them. I always say, be collaborative. And this is for parents out there, whether it's teens or children, when children are angry, when they're depressed, when they're anxious, you really want to join with them. And I say to parents, when you feel stuck as a parent, become their emotion coach. So it might look like, listen, you know, Todd, there's a part of me right now, the way you're speaking to me, feels really hurtful. And there's a part of me that wants to come back and really come at you and yell. But you know what? I don't think that's going to help you and me. So see, as I'm talking right now, I'm narrating my own emotional experience and I'm modeling. OK, so as a coach, I'm I'm modeling and I'm slowing myself down by using my thinking brain, by describing what's going on for me, and hopefully a modeling. Then I might want to ask that teen or that child, you know, I wonder, maybe you agree with me, maybe you don't agree with me, but don't you think if we have a constructive conversation about this, we're going to get further? Maybe we won't, but don't you think there's a higher chance we'll work this out if we can talk this out? You know, so again, and and even, but a lot of what parents do is they put themselves on the bottle it up and explode later plan. Like they try to ignore it. They try to pretend it's not bothering them. And then they just go nuts. You know, they just, you're not, you're losing your phone for the next year, or you're not going to have the car or stay up in your room for the rest of your life. You know, that kind of thing. So the parents get emotionally hijacked too. I've heard that happens in relationships as well. Mass it's interesting you asked me that because my first book was they all came from pain but my first one came when I went came from when I went through a divorce which was um you know over 20 years ago at this point um, and I was really trying to look at what brought the end to this marriage and you know I always wanted to be one of those guys I'm joking that would say well it was all her fault you know but uh, <laughs> I knew it's a little more sophisticated and nuanced than that and I realized I was having a lot of toxic thoughts, and I think at the time my, my ex-wife certainly was too, Could we all get them, we're human, you know, like, it's always about you, you know, you never think of anybody but yourself, you know, you're a this, or you're a that, um, you always have to be right, you know, you should know how I feel, and then one day when I heard that, you should know how I feel, I thought, why can't she read my mind, why you know, and then that became the title of my first book, Why Can't You Read My Mind? And Why Can't You Read My Mind is exactly what you're asking me about. It's it's about how we get toxic thoughts. Just like I described, you know, you are never ever reasonable, you know, that kind of thing. I can't ever reason with you, whatever form of that statement comes out, but it's that rigid, all or nothing, very uncharitable thought that comes out when we feel threatened and the reason that intimate relationships I think are such a fertile breeding ground for toxic thoughts is because we're so vulnerable in an intimate relationship we're trusting this other person we're we're with them romantically spiritually intimately we put so much of ourselves in and then when we have those inevitable misses those miscommunications those misunderstandings you know Those misses, I call them, we end up with what I call the 3D effect, which is we get a little bit distracted. Then we get distance. That's the second D. And then if it goes too far, we get disconnection. And the whole point of that book and the whole point of this work with couples is that empathy, empathy is more important. Well, I'll say this, it's just as important as, if not more important than love. The way we detoxify, Our thoughts are by learning to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Not give in, not be abused, not enable, but to see their perspective. And when you have empathy, that is a great way of detoxifying. And there was another book I wrote years ago called Liking the Child You Love, which was all about how we have these toxic thoughts, which most of us are chicken to admit we have them, toward our own children. You're sucking this family dry. There's nothing I do that's enough for you. You're just a spoiled brat. You never appreciate anything. And and we love our kids, but we often feel we don't like them. But a lot of us are very afraid to admit that, but it comes out in these over the top elephant gun like delivered consequences. So so yeah, so the whole point is when we can step back and say, you know, You have a tendency to think strongly about things because you're very passionate, but that doesn't mean that you're globally a sensitive person. Um, You know, kind of learning to reframe those toxic thoughts into more manageable, accepting ones will get us. So, for example, you're lazy. Well, now, whether that's toward a child or toward a spouse, well, right now your motivation we blocked, but I certainly admire how when you were going out for a cross-country team, how you went out and took those runs seriously. Or, you know what, I got to give it to you. I, you play that Xbox, you know, five hours. at it. Yes, it's very riveting, but you did advance yourself to a high level. Your, your friends were telling me this, that kind of thing. So we need to really find the good, the positives in others. Um, because it's so easy to get mired in negativity.
1: That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You, Go ahead. So you talked about one thing is calming down. Another thing is problem solving, being like the yes. true skills if we can master them. How do we get better at problem solving? I was talking to an expert the other day, Clip, who wrote a book about behavioral economics and some of the biases that we have. Mm-hmm. What's your take on some of the things we can actually do?
0: I think, you know, I think a lot of times we have it within us and we don't see it. I think one of the best things we can do to be good problem solvers is to sit down and make a list. That would be the ideal, but at least formally go over and mull over in our heads, kind of think through times that we have approached situations well and have problem solved them. I mean, certainly the classic steps are you want to, you know, slow yourself down, identify the problem, you know come up with possible solutions, test them out, and then see if it works and then keep recycling. But I think a lot of times we're so flooded over. So certainly you want to do your, you know, watch your breathing, take some deep breaths, relax your body, try to manage those toxic thoughts. Those are all important. You know, I hate this. I can't do this. There's, you know, I'll never be good enough, all those things, you know coming back with, hey, look, this is hard for me, but it's not the end of the world. I've done a lot of difficult things before. So really managing that self-talk. But then I think we can really give ourselves a gift by saying, wait a minute, you know, I can solve problems. And like, you know, back when I was really having a hard time in chemistry and I did go and Saw the teacher and, well, the teacher, you know, was intimidating me. Well, then I talked to my parents and, you know, they. I'm really grateful they got me a tutor and I sought some extra help there or, you know, um, a situation with a friend who took something the wrong way. And, hey, you know what? I initiated that discussion to kind of check in and see what was going on, you know? So the more we come up with data, the more we come up with looking at our own behavioral experiences of the situations that we did solve conflicts we didn't manage really boosts us. And and I'm a big believer, um, Mass, in terms of um, islands of competence, that we need to build our islands of competence. And how do we do those? We look for them. I mean, if you go out today and you buy a blue, I, I don't know if it's okay to mention a specific model, but a blue Toyota, you know, whatever the make is, like a blue Toyota Camry, tomorrow what you're going to see on the road are what? Toyota Camrys. It's called selective attention. And the more we tend to have something top of mind and we have to work at a little bit, but the more we're going to see it. And then we'll see more of it. The more I focus on the problems I've solved, what I've done a good job in, the more I'm likely to give myself the benefit of the doubt.
1: I think that's one of the reasons that positive psychology or gratitude journal is so effective as well. So since 2013, I've been writing down my gratitude journal every night. And I just, I see more of the positive. I have my focus on it. Apart from that I surf, I see surfboards everywhere. And when I start a new sport, I see that everywhere. But I think that's such a powerful thing to really be aware of, that you see what, it's, it's it's a cycle where you see it more and more.
0: I'm so glad you brought up gratitude. I really am. I, I, it's, it's been in, you know, all my books, um, and lately, I've really, very strongly in the Stress Survival Guide for Teens, which was another one, and, and the latest one, um, you know, the, the Anxiety, Depression, and Anger Toolbox, and a lot of gratitude exercises and activities in there, and, you know, um, the question is, why does gratitude work? And it's kind of because it, I really think. It's an incompatible to have gratitude and also be anxious. It's very hard to fill yourself up. You know, anxiety is a real scarcity mentality. It's what if, it's I'll never be able to have enough of this. Oh my gosh, what if I lose this? And when you focus on what you have and really allow yourself to feel it, it's, it's just, it's wonderful. And I think that gratitude and acceptance Are to you know accepting a situation versus trying to tell yourself it shouldn't be there or why me um, doesn't mean we can't work to improve it. But I think gratitude and acceptance are huge tools, and gratitude is a big part of positive psychology, as you mentioned. I I just a few weeks ago brought back out, I cleaned out the dust, and I brought back out my my gratitude jar. Um, I was doing a journal, an app on my phone. Um, but I find that if I take that gratitude jar and literally put it on my desk and I fill it up with paper, like little post-it notes, and I see them pile up, it just gives me that visual cue that I've got things filling me up. And I love gratitude. I, I And I'm I'm grateful that every time someone like you right now brings up gratitude, that I remember how valuable it is because I struggle at times to have it. There's a lot of times I... I might fall into what we all do, comparing myself negatively to others. And then I feel anxious, comparing myself to a standard I have that is just unrealistic. And so I'm so grateful right now that you brought up gratitude because I think we all need to kind of like have each other's back when it comes to gratitude because we're in a world filled with a lot of, you know, (laughs) breaking news and things that shock us and scare us. and, And we need to be able to remind each other to be grateful. So Mass. one of the best things out of this interview today is besides the honor of being here with you, is you reminding me, because it's in my books, but I also like to be real human with my with everybody that I work with and say, I have to battle for this too. But gosh, when I do, I feel so much better. So
1: for me, it's, it's one of the most powerful things. But also when I'm sick, because I've made it into a habit now, I actually appreciate that I'm normally well. And for some people that haven't started, it might sound holy or something else, but it really is a practice of learning it. So whenever I'm sick, I'm very grateful that I'm normally feeling well and looking forward to feeling well again. And I I also see it as a reminder. Sometimes you need something bad in your life to really appreciate the good. When things are going too well all the time, is you don't appreciate it in the same way. But when I had migraine or something else, I really do appreciate that I don't have migraine on a daily basis, basis and I only get it two times a year so uh, most people that listen to the podcast has heard me talk so much about gratitude journal but I think it's it's so essential
0: it's very essential and the more that we can build it into our lives like a habit I, I know that for me I've done different things I mean I've gone when I'd go to the gym and I'd walk out of the gym and I'd say okay this is my gratitude cue I'm walking right now by the front desk on the way out Let me say a gratitude to myself. So I found that if I kind of come up with these gratitude stations, these cues, these physical kind of stimuli that kind of let me know to be grateful, that can work. And of course, my gratitude jar, the app. Sometimes I find I need to really mix it up, like do different types of strategies, the jar, the journal, writing it down, um, or just having really good conversations about it too. But you're right. And again, I think one of the really cool things about gratitude is you, you really can't be actively grateful and anxious at the same time. It's hard to be depressed when you're feeling grateful. And it's very also hard to be angry when you're feeling <laughs> grateful. So that's why I have exercises up the wazoo in my book about different ways to help people get to that state of gratitude.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So yes. your book, 10 Steps to a defiant child,
0: or how was oh, it? Oh, that that was ten days to a less defiant child, and I can tell you a real quick story on that because that one came from from pain too. Um Back in two thousand, uh, I want to say two thousand three, two thousand four. I'm a dad with three kids, single dad, and my kids. I was I was in oh, I'm a yeller in recovery. I mean, that's what I'll tell you. I was just reactive, reactive, reactive. I was just frustrated and angry and wasn't managing my life emotionally, even though, you know, as well as I could have. And my clients, you know, I had my game face on and my kids would say to me, you know, oh, you know, you're, you're Mr. You know, you're Dr. Psychologist and, you know, people, you know, but you, you can't even handle your own kids, you know? And it was great. Like when I really was able to listen and it all came down to one day, Mass, was I was getting the kids in the car and my son, Sam, Push and I—he's I, given me the green light to tell this story. Um, he pushed his—he was nine. He pushed his younger sister Gabby against the car. Here they were fighting over something, and so. And my oldest, Alyssa, was there. She's 11. And so I, I turned to him. I said, you get in the car right now. How dare you? You don't treat girls like that. You don't treat people like that. You know, my little lecture. So then he he gets in and he's sitting next to Gabby. You know, Gabby's hamming it up and crying like a younger sibling, you know, in drama. And then I've got my oldest in the front seat. Aren't you going to do something, Dad? You know, and all this. It was chaos. And I turned to him and I said, you will apologize to your sister right now. And he, he looks at me. And he said, make me. Now, back in the old days, I used to live in a very rural area with cornfields. And I had this fantasy of taking my son out to a cornfield, <laughs> just really letting him have it. I was so frustrated. And I felt so stuck. And so I had this epiphany came over me, Mass. It was unbelievable. Like, honestly, I never had this. I imagined that I was floating over the car, looking down. And I watched him working me. I saw where he was and the struggles in his life. And I saw mine. And by looking down metaphorically from above, I was able to take a lot of my own ego out of it. And by doing so, I heard myself say to him, Sam, I'm asking you please to apologize to your sister. I can't make you, but I know you're better than this. And that was the birth of that book, which I'm grateful and honored to say reached its second edition, 10 Days to a Less Defiant Child. And that book came from that moment. And it was the birth also of the theme of the book, a couple themes, but one is calm, firm, non-controlling. No one likes to be told what to do, especially when their brain is in overreactive mode. Calm, firm, non-controlling. So me saying, Sam, I'm asking you please, to apologize to your sister, I know you're better than this, but I can't make you, was that, that's an example of that mindset. And I always say, it's not about the specific, everybody wants tools, I'm all about tools, but if you don't have a mindset, the tools aren't going to work. And so, going back to how I feel to manage anxiety, depression, and anger, calm down, solve problems. Those two steps. How do you manage a reactive, defiant child? Calm, firm, non-controlling if you think about that mindset the rest will just come to you and it did now am i claiming i was the perfect father since then and i never got reactive of course not but i'll tell you what it changed me so much from that moment on i yelled i overreacted much less not perfect but much less you know the only perfect people are in the cemetery but I, I i got much better and most importantly. My kids got to see me in a way that they could communicate and feel emotionally safer with me. And I learned to be a coach, an emotion coach. And the funny part of that story, too, is my son, Sam, he's a good guy. He's currently at the time of this show. He's, uh, you know, he's 26 years old. He's a power lifter. And he he squats like I'm bragging, I'm so proud of him, but he's a good guy. That's what I really admire about him. But he, he does like a six hundred and sixty pound squat and a seven hundred and, uh, and 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 five pound deadlift. So and he's only like two hundred and I don't know, fifteen pounds. So, you know, if I ever took him out to that cornfield years ago, he would payback would have been pretty brutal. So <laughs> he's a good guy. But it was a key learning experience for me to really have to step outside of myself. And that's that was what really drove 10 days to a less defiant trial.
1: I really love that framework. That's super concrete Thanks, and a good way of thinking about it. I, I totally agree, the mindset. And then you can use the tools afterwards. But I think that's very concrete. I'm sure there's several of the listeners out there that's going to apply that.
0: I, I hope so. and thank you. And again, they all came from pain. But the good news, and it's been such an honor and talk about being grateful, is I've now had thirty something years, and a lot of these things that I've come up with, these strategies, these mindsets, I, I I ask clients for their feedback. and i I feel like I know less now. Years ago, I knew everything because I'm always learning. like you, I'm a lifelong learner. and but I but that said, I will say that I also feel I've validated by working with so many people. That, yeah. And, you know, I don't really have anybody that comes into my office and says, you know, look like a middle aged person looking back. You know, what messed up my childhood was my parents just took too much time to really understand where I was coming from. And I certainly don't have couples coming into my office and saying on the precipice of divorce and saying, you know, He just listens to me too much. He just really gets me. He takes too much time to empathize. Now, if any of that happens, I'll quit. (laughs) But that's not going to happen. And that's why we have to really look within ourselves to create these conditions and also share them with those with whom we love and value. That definitely
1: resonates. And again, as you said, it's, it's harder to practice in real life and no one is perfect, but being aware of it. And I really like your model of being... First, calm down, and then you can start working on it. As long as your amygdala is working, you're not going to make the good decisions. You're not going to listen properly. And I think that's so important to remember. It's hard to catch ourselves once we get in that state, but it is a practice and becoming more aware of
0: it. It is. And I think, you know, there's a model, Dan Siegel on YouTube. It's it's easy to find his motto. It's the hand model, the brain and he, he really does a nice job of showing how, you know, we have, he takes a human fist. And I also have a model of that in my book. I adapted it in the toolbox book. And it's a very concrete model where you can see if you hold up your fist, you know, where your are, um, um, like the, the knuckle part of your hand is, is your, your forehead, where you have your, you know, your, your, your prefrontal cortex, and then where your thumb is covered when you close that fist back in there you have your reactive brain and it's a nice way of looking at it and seeing it and certainly you're right you know the more that we can manage our reactive brains the better off we all are and he, and consistent with his model he talks about name it to tame it and i think a lot of times when we're able to just say listen i'm really feeling anxious right now i'm pretty stressed out i'm a little scared i'm depressed you know i'm i'm struggling with this when we actually use our thinking brain to come up with the words for that that helps calm us down too. So naming it, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's one thing to do it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but there's nothing wrong when we need to share our experience doing it when appropriate. Because when we verbalize it, because we often hear, you know, talk about it. You need to talk about it. It helps to talk. And people are like, why should I talk about it? But then when you look at that model, that when you start to transfer all that reactivity and hyperactivity in your amygdala that reacting brain when you take your deep breaths when you count to 10 which starts to engage that's another one when you start to engage your logic thinking brain then you can find the words and then when you find the words you're moving all that angst to words which are your thinking brain and that helps transfer and calm you down got it
1: so I will make sure to make notes to all of your books oh, so people you. can find them and your website as well. Any preferred channel for people to reach out to you? Oh,
0: um, well, I mean, I, I'm on LinkedIn, Dr. Jeffrey Bernstein, psychologist. Um, my, my website is got all my information on there, and that is drjeffonline.com. D-R-J-E-F-F, so between, and that's got a form submission page. So sure. Those work in my email, d-r-j-e-f-f-4, the number, help, h-e-l-p, at gmail.com. So they're all different methods. Before we round off, any last advice for the listeners out there? Be kind to yourself. I know we all say that, but I think we're in a place where self-compassion, where we have a real self-compassion shortage out there. Uh, (laughs) Remember, it takes time for all of us to keep growing. And think of ourselves as learning and growing. I think that introduces a lot of flexibility. So that way, when you tell yourself you're learning and growing and you try meditating or you try counting to 10 or you try doing, you know, body relaxation or anything, therapy, and you feel like it's not working, remind yourself, I'm learning and growing. And that's okay. And it takes time. And I think doing that um, and remembering, again, that it's all about the mindset, you know, calm down and solve problems. And when you look at life that way, at least for me, Mass, I find that, again, for me, that really works. And I find it resonates with a lot of people. Like it all begins with calm down and solve problems. Then you can introduce and you can learn those tech skills. Then you can learn those communication skills and those writing skills. Or you can try to train and you know do that athletic event. But until you can really calm down and problem solve, it's probably going to be hard to just Go do something without having good expectations.
1: Super. That's good. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your this lovely conversation and some very concrete advice that people can do. I, I really appreciate you taking the time.
0: And thank you so much for having me and being such a kind and supportive host and interviewer.